Welcome to the Student of the Game podcast with Tim Stone, where I sit down with successful entrepreneurs to extract the knowledge you need to increase your income and avoid simple mistakes. You learn from their failures so you don't have to go through the same thing. I hope that you find one lesson you can apply to your life from this episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. I'm, I'm excited to just dive into this. I got some stuff I want to learn from you. So hopefully that's- Oh, let's do it. Let's go. Let's, let's jump into it. I just want to, you know, congrats on your success. I, I'm, I'm impressed and you're doing a great thing um, going out and getting deals done. You've got that 10 plucks you bought with no money down. And it's so interesting, like thinking about um, people in your Instagram comments or people in your YouTube comments that'll say stuff like, oh, the seller got screwed. You're like, dude, now we I've done over 3,000 transactions now. I've never had a seller that wouldn't text me today and still say eight years, 10 years later, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for understanding the situation. But it also just highlights to you how easy this game really is once you understand where deals come from and how we as investors make money. We just solve people's problems. And so like the people that are in the Instagram comments and the YouTube comments that just don't understand that one key factor of solving other people's problems, they assume everything is this traditional world of real estate agents. It's like, dude, I rarely do deals with real estate agents. In fact, I just made a whole entire Instagram story thing yesterday where I blasted agents, where I was like, I made more money off agents failing in the traditional space than I've ever made in my entire life over the last 36 months. And it's because I understand how to solve the seller's problem when the agent who's licensed, I'm not, does not know how to solve the problem, right? So it's just interesting, dude. And you're on the right path and you're, you're literally 10 years ahead of me, which is really freaking cool. I appreciate that. I don't feel that way yet, but thank you. I don't think you'll ever feel that way, bro. Like even right now, you know, I feel like I'm behind, you know, I've got half a billion dollars in holdings and I still feel like I'm behind. It's a, it's a weird thing that high achievers will always feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just were sitting down with Grant Cardone a couple of days ago, right? Like, yeah, we, I mean, him and I have been hanging out for the last three years and we've been friends. He's been on our TV show on A&E and um, him and his wife, his wife and I text actually frequently. She'll text me, hey, I have an agent that needs help on this and whatever else. And we've had a great relationship over the, over the years. But interviewing him and, you know, seeing that they have, I don't know what they have. I think they have $5 billion in holdings and something like 12,000 units or something like that. Now they don't use creative finance. So I know for sure I will dominate him by the time I, by the time I'm his age, bro, he's 25 years older yeah. than me. Like he's your entire age on top mm -hmm. of my age. That's how old he is. Um, he looks phenomenal. He looks like he's 51, but I know for sure I'm ahead of Grant Cardone. Now people like you shouldn't compare each other. You shouldn't compare your chapter mm -hmm. one to somebody else's chapter 20. Yes, I should. I want to be inspired and I want to have a target and I'm not trying to take Grant down, but I definitely want to have a target so I can, I can chase him. And there's that friendly collaboration through competition that really inspires this testosterone driven male inside of me, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's possible because he's done it and you look at, you know, whatever age he started, like he started really doing real estate in his thirties. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're like, well, I can, yeah, I mean, I he kind of stumbled into it. The, the interesting conversation about Grant is that Grant was making so much money not in real estate, and his financial advisor was like, Grant, you got to make more, you got to take your money and you've got to go buy some multifamily stuff. So he buys his first multifamily deal with his own money, right? And he did this. It's so interesting to talk to it, uh, have these conversations with him because me as an investor, I have also had these same fears of raising other people's capital and putting into my deals because I, you know, limiting belief. I don't know what the market's going to do. I don't want to take on somebody else's money. I've had all these same thoughts that he's sharing with me in this conversation. But the conversation was basically, hey, the first couple of deals we did, we just use our own money and we did it just to avoid taxes. Like we weren't even trying to be real estate investors. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden this little freaking multifamily deal we buy in like Lafayette, Louisiana. I don't think that's where it was, but somewhere down in that part of the country. He goes and freaking this thing doubles in like three years. And he's like, wait, 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 why have we not been doing this mm -hmm. this whole time? And so it took six years after him having success in multifamily for his wife, Elena, to convince him to go put a fund together. So like a lot of people don't understand. They just see the person he is today. They don't understand the limiting beliefs, the, the struggles and all of those types of things that he had as well. So hanging out with these people, it's not so much about, hey, you did it. 
and therefore I can do it too. That's all also very important because your, your parents, my parents didn't show us those things. Like I have to learn it from other people. Right. Mm -hmm. And also it's our responsibility to show other people, right? Like people buying my book or buy, watching my YouTube channel or in my free Facebook group or on our challenges. Like those people are, are basically getting my 10 year learning curve and cutting it down to two years or maybe a year and a half to get somewhat similar success. Grant, the best part about hanging out with them is not those like permissions of, Hey, it's okay to go do these big, awesome things. The best part is knowing that the limiting beliefs and the mindset things that are holding you back, everybody has them as well. And so you don't feel, you don't go, wait, hold on. Is there something wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you other than you didn't know that everybody else is also thinking this as well. So if everybody else is thinking it, then don't let it debil debilitate you and like completely hold you back. So um, it's fun to watch that. It's fun to watch other people doing yeah. it. And I look at the people that are making comments on Instagram or YouTube that are like, this isn't possible. Or maybe creative finance deals are not easy to find. I'm like, are you kidding me? Go to landwatch.com. You'll find 14,000 listings right now on owner finance. Go on the MLS mm -hmm. right now. There's over 100,000 listings on the MLS right now with seller finance or subject to in the description. Yeah, they're, they're are, They are everywhere. And then I just did one three weeks ago. Yeah, all, all caps, seller financing, low down payment available in the description. Oh. Set on the market for five and a half months. We but they're, dude, they're not available. They're not, yeah. you can't find them, man. It's impossible. This, this doesn't happen. I, these deals aren't hanging around. You know, you get the, all that kind of crap. And mm. about eight years ago, I decided I'm done with cash deals. Like I'm done. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of talking to lenders that bait and switch. I'm sick of the Burr strategy. Does the Burr strategy work? Do we still do it from time to time? Yes. Like from time to time, I'll do the Burr strategy. But oh my gosh, it is so slow. It is so lethargic. Like you just feel like a sloth trying to invest in real estate. And real estate is a long game, as you know. And you're not going to become, even though I have millions and millions and millions of dollars in my equity and all my positions and all my properties, I'm not pulling that out today. I'm letting it grow and letting it build. And so a lot of people, they they get into real estate with the, the wrong, wrong thought process of I'm going to get three rentals and I'm going to quit my job. It's like, no, real estate's a long game. Keep your job five, seven years, build your portfolio, let your portfolio grow, raise your rents, and then quit your job. Um, the reason I say that is because I think that there's just this misconception about what real estate really is that keeps people from actually being successful in it. Like traditional real estate's the way to go. It's not. The get a, go get a license, that's a great way to get started in real estate. That's not. The best way to get started in real estate, in my opinion, is probably go work for somebody else. Like what you did, right? Go jump into and be a management be a management position, learn from other people, be in the actual proximity. It beats every book you can watch or read. It beats every seminar you could go to, beats everything. And you can get equity positions in other people's deals by being on their team and providing value to them. And meanwhile, you can actually get paid a salary. I think that's one of the best ways to get started. But other people are going out and getting their license. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you want to get a deal right now? Here's Here's what I do. If I want to get a deal today, if somebody dropped me in the middle of a field in Oklahoma and I'm butt naked with a cell phone, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to pull up expired listings and I'm going to call the sellers on the expired listings and I'm going to say, hey, um, I noticed that the agent failed to, to sell your home. Uh, my name is Pace and I'm a buyer. I'd like to buy your house. Can we sit down and meet today? It's not that hard. You know how many of those pop up in my market every day? 40. 40 of those opportunities a day pop up in my, mm. my, my market. 40. I bought a fourplex last week, a duplex uh, last week, another duplex last week, a fourplex we've got under contract. Like small, small multifamily, large multifamily. Did a 160 mm. unit down in Tucson a couple months back. We closed on a $20 million purchase. Expired listing. RV park, I just mm. closed. $5 million purchase. No money down. 4% interest. 10-year balloon expired listing. The majority of the deals I do are from agents who failed to educate themselves and therefore failed to educate their, their sellers. So dude, like these deals are everywhere. 2,500 okay. agents a day get fired. 2,500 agents a day get fired across the country. These expired listings are sellers who are obviously motivated. They kept their house on yep. the market for over six months. And just to be deflated and then, pe um, you know, people that are just getting started literally, okay, can mm -hmm. call and go, hey, I just want to buy that deal. Now, do you have to buy that deal? No, you could wholesale yeah. it. 
you could, if you're an agent, you could relist it with creative terms, or you could also take it down yourself and bring on a financial partner if you don't have the money to do it. Um, so dude, there's just so many ways to win and creative finance. And I, I look mm. at not just 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026. My goal five years ago was I'm going to normalize the conversation around creative finance so that guys like you coming up in the game are like, this is not that hard. Like other people are doing this at a high level. In fact, this is all other people are doing. It's not, Hey, I'm going to do nine traditional deals and one creative deal. It's like, no, I'm doing 99 creative deals and maybe one traditional boring deal that actually, I know I'm on, I'm on a roll right now. I'm so sorry. But I, I, here's the other thing about traditional real estate. That's bullshit. Here's the thing. Every time I've ever bought a tradition, a piece of traditional real estate, like traditional methods, guess what I've had to do. I've had to lowball the seller and take equity out of their position in order for me to get a good enough deal that I can flip that deal or I can wholesale that deal. Guess what I don't have to do in creative finance? I don't have to take a pound of flesh out of that seller in order for me to make money. Traditional real estate is a zero sum game. Creative finance mm -hmm. is a everybody wins game. And so the guy who makes a comment in my IG or DMs me or the agent who is getting fired, they just don't understand the 1% that guys like me and guys like you know, is that I just have to know a little bit more than you. I just have to know that the, the tax benefits for the seller on seller finance mm -hmm. are better than traditional. I have to know that if I give the sell, if I upgrade the seller from being the landlord to, to the lender, he's in a stronger position and he can now make interest without talking to the tenants, deal with taxes or any of the other, or the other crap that comes along with it. Agents just don't get this. All they understand is let me get my commission and put a sign in the yard and then I'll get my 2% commission. Six months later, their ass is getting fired and then I'm calling and saying, hey, I'm an actual buyer. That agent sucked. Let's not go through agents. I'll buy the deal direct, right? So mm -hmm. it's such an exciting time for real estate, bro. Absolutely. There's a ton of gold in there and I wrote stuff down so we can go back to it. But it was funny you mentioned like if you were just dropped off somewhere random with your phone, butt naked, how would you get a deal? So we're, we're doing this. I'm not going to be naked, but in like a week, going to spin a wheel, whatever city it lands on, flying there for a week. Got to come back with a creative real estate deal. I love it. So I wanted to uh, go a little deeper on some things because I'm actually doing it. Like hypothetically, I'm, I'm going to call those expired listings that have a buyer set up some in-person appointments, but what else would you do? I just, um, expired listings would be my fastest, um, way to do it for Here's the problem with foreclosures, like an expired listing. You're talking to somebody who tried to sell their house for six months. I know they're trying to right. sell their house. People always say, I, I want to find a motivated buyer. Like who's more motivated or motivated seller. Who's more motivated? I would say the most motivated seller, most motivated seller on the planet is the person who is in foreclosure and is two days away from getting foreclosed on. Because here, here's what happens. Here's the psychology of a foreclosure seller. And I, I used to focus entirely on foreclosure sellers. The psychology of a foreclosure seller is I want to stay in my house. And I, if I just stop answering emails and letters and phone calls from the bank and the creditors, it'll all go away. They are the ostrich with their head in the sand. And so they avoid everything to the point where they turn their phone off, which is why most of my students that are focusing on foreclosures, guess what they have to do? Door knock. You have to door knock foreclosures. Otherwise, everybody else is going to beat you. You know how many people actually foreclose or go door knock foreclosures? Like 1% of people that actually call on foreclosures will ever go and door knock. So I've got a student named Nita Patel, single woman in Chicago, does five, maybe seven sub two deals every single month from knocking foreclosures. So if you're going to go after foreclosures, you've got a call, you've got a text, whoever doesn't reply, you immediately go and knock on their door, takes a little bit of time. Great. The challenge with foreclosures, okay, that's that you don't have with expired listings. The challenge with the foreclosures is the, that the seller might not want to move out of that house in a foreclosure situation. They might have kids, right? Oh my gosh, I don't know where I'm going to go. And there's, you know, unless you can give me some money, which if I'm, if somebody's in foreclosure, we'll buy their house sub like 90% of time I'm buying their house sub two. I'm bringing in a private money lender to catch up their arrears and cover my closing costs. So I'm into the, the, the deal, no money out of pocket. And then I give the seller 5,000 bucks so they can go find an apartment to live in or whatever else. The challenge is I'm disrupting that seller's life significantly. They were dragging their feet all the way up until three days before the auction. And then I've got to come in 
you know, this is a gangster strategy too. Like, cause everybody else, you know, they'll watch a YouTube video on how to stop before or how to buy a foreclosure deal. I just, I, I'm not calling any foreclosure people until three days before they get foreclosed on, because guess what has happened? An agent's already been com communicated to, they've already tried to do a loan modification and failed. They've listed the property possibly like 80% of the time they've already listed the property and a wholesaler has probably already gotten them under contract and not sold the deal because it doesn't have equity. So the, there's three or four things that have already happened before I even come to the table. And now the seller is like, I have three days to figure this out. Along comes Pace with sub two and says, I'll just take over your payments, get you into an apartment, I'll get you set up. I'm not gonna waste my time. I'm only calling foreclosures that are two to three days before the foreclosure. Now people are like, well, how does that, how do you do that? Well, we we postpone the foreclosure, we go, we get them under contract, call the trustee, and we say, hey, trustee, we are now under contract, we need 30 days to close, which we don't. In creative finance, you don't need 30 days to close, but we say we need 30 days to close, and then I either A, find a buyer, wholesale that deal, or B, I take it down myself and, and, and save the seller from foreclosure, get their payments back into good standing, which is great. The challenge with this, okay, the biggest challenge with that, again, is that that seller might go, I don't want to move. This is my house. This is my home. I, I really want to figure this out. If that's the situation, you're not getting a deal that day. What I do is I bring in, I have this really gangster lender that will come in and refinance their loan, keep them in the home, and basically say, hey, I'm a new lender for you. It's a higher interest rate, and it's really like a 24-month loan, so they, they can get back, build themselves back up and refinance that guy out, right? I have gangster lenders that will come in and like mm -hmm. wipe them, wipe out their old lender in like 24 hours. Okay, great. Foreclosures are, are great, but here's the other problem with foreclosures. The other problem with foreclosures is that these people are bad decision makers. And yes, I'm generalizing. Most of them make really poor decisions. They manage their money incorrectly. They get divorced. They they're, you know, A lot of the... I'm sorry, nobody on nobody going through foreclosures watching me right now. So I'll just be really honest. They are cheap, like it's the husband and wife own the house. The husband's down the street sleeping with 14 other women. It, they're smoking weed in the backyard. They're making really bad decisions with their life. That's the average person that's in foreclosure that I ran into run into is they are making significantly poor decisions in their life. Therefore, that's the person you're communicating with and you're trying to get under contract. It's like a slippery fish. You're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? These people are da, 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 da. foreclosures are challenging. They are challenging. So if I'm like, I have to get a deal today, I'm calling expired listings and I'm calling them the first hour that they become an expired listing and I'm not wasting my time doing what other agents are doing. So I'm not an agent, nor will I ever be. I thought about making a YouTube video one time where I was like, let me go to real estate school every day mm -hmm. and I'm going to journal and record what I learn in there and just tell you guys how worthless real estate school is and that it's crazy to me that somebody can go get a barber's license but it takes them 1,200 required hours to cut your hair with a license. But you as an agent only need 60 hours to become a licensed real estate agent who's a fiduciary. You are financially responsible mm -hmm. for somebody's largest purchase or largest asset of their life. And you only need 60 hours of education. What? Are you kidding me? I can tell you there's far less things to learn in freaking barber school than there is in real estate school. They don't learn how to comp. They don't learn how to... Nothing. They, they learn nothing. Mm -hmm. So... I thought about doing it, but, I, but I, I won't. So what happens is agents, okay, for people that are out there watching, expired listings, I used to call them expired listings. I'm now calling them agent failed listings. And it changes the, 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 the frame of your mind of like, oh, an agent failed to sell this house. The question you should ask yourself is what did the agent not know or what did the agent not do that I need to do or I need to know? More often than not, the seller wanted too much money. More often than not, the seller didn't have enough equity, okay? The market dictates the price, not the agent and not the seller, okay? If you want to beat the market, all you have to do is no terms, right? And so what I do is I call the sellers. This is how easy it is. I say, hey, my name is Pace. I'm not a real estate agent. I'm sure you're sick of their calls. In fact, I saw that the agent that tried to sell your house failed after six months of trying and I just want to let you know, my, I'm a local real estate investor. I'd like to buy your house. Let's meet today and get a deal done. That's my line. I talk crap all about the agents. Now, 
are there really great agents out there? Yeah, but yeah. I don't, I would never want to tell people I'm an agent. I would rather tell people I'm a licensed investor. If you're an agent out there listening to this podcast, guys, nobody likes agents. Agents don't like agents. I'm going to tell you right now, most people that hate agents are other agents that actually produce and look at the other poor agents that are like giving them a bad name. Like, dude, I don't want to call myself the same thing that that person is. That person's an embarrassment to our entire craft. If you are an agent that wants to be set aside or set like a, a notch above, call yourself a licensed investor. That sounds gangster. That has a lot of weight to it. So what I would do, expired listings, wherever you get dropped, you're going to have an average expired listing amount of 20 expired listings per day, whatever market you go to. You go to Houston, you're going to have 80. You go to uh, Dallas, you're going to have 40, 50. You go to Atlanta, Georgia, you're going to have 30, 40. You, have, you go to Phoenix, you're going to have 30, 40. You go to anywhere in California, massive cities, massive ex, ex, uh, expired listings. If you go to that seller and you call expired listings, you will 100% impossible. It is impossible for you not to get a deal in your first week if you're just making 20 calls a day. Impossible. Physically impossible because the seller of expired listings has already said, to you, hey, they didn't say this to you. They just showed you with their actions. I listed the property six months ago. I was willing to go through half a year of my life not selling this property, and I beat my head against the wall with this agent. Now I hate real estate agents, so I hate them so much I, exp I, I, I freaking fired that agent, and now I'm thinking about finding a different agent because I think, as the seller, I think that's my only solution is hire an agent because obviously agents sell houses. Mm -hmm. No, they don't. Agents don't sell houses. Price of home or terms sell a house. The agents, this is the person that's shuffling the paperwork. Now, that's it. Like if you if you go do expired, I did this for bigger pockets, by the way. And I got mm -hmm. a deal in five hours. Okay. I, I I go, tell me what you want me to do. Tell me where you want me to start. I started on our park bench. This is what they, they're like. Um, we want and I made a whole video about it. It's I think it comes out in a couple of weeks, but wow. um I went and sat on a park bench, started from scratch. I was like, here I am. I'm going to take a bus to the middle of nowhere and I'm going to have not even a cell phone. So this is what I did. I walked to a title company. I went to the title company. I go, hey, do you guys have data? Most title companies do. Do you have data on who are, where the expired listings are? And can you get me the phone numbers for them? And they couldn't give me the phone number. So I just went on, I asked, can I use one of your computers? And can I use one of your empty offices with one of your phones? Of course, a lot of title and escrow offices are empty right now because the market took a big dip. And so they let go of a lot of their people. So I sit in the office at Fidelity. This is at Fidelity title. And they let me use one of their computers and they let me use one of their phones. What did I do? I called expired listings. Hey, my name is Pace. I'm sure you're sick of hearing from agents. I'm not an agent, nor would I ever be one because I look at it. I, I see that the agent that tried to sell your house failed after half, half of a year. I am a real estate investor and I'm looking to buy your house. I'm not going to give you an offer. We're not going to go back and forth. Let's get this deal done today. What would it take? By the way, has anybody ever offered to just take over the payments or maybe even give you payments and pay you what you're asking? Oh, they haven't. Okay, great. Well, let's sit down and I'll give you a couple of options. And then what I did, so this is what I did. It, within five hours, mm -hmm. park bench, hour to the title company, an hour of phone calls, two hours of walking to the, the seller's house. I sit down, I present three options to him. I said, here's your, here's your cash offer if I'm going to buy it cash. Obviously, you're going to say no to that. Otherwise, you would have sold it on the market. B, here's me taking over your payments subject to, he had never heard this before after being on the market six wow. months, by the way. It's amazing how many sellers have never been pitched this at all. Like, it's a blue ocean, in my opinion. Now, mm -hmm. we in the influence space of like YouTube, we are it's like, oh yeah, Pace Morby, sub two, sub two, sub right. two, sub two. Everybody's in sub two, right? It, yeah. it, we all know that. So you assume that everybody's doing it. They're not, bro. Expired yeah. listings are like a blue ocean. So I sit down with the seller. I said this and goes, okay, well, what if I don't want to do that? I go, well, I can partner with you. And what you do is you name your price. I'll go and um, put this on the market and I'll clean it up a little bit and we'll do it what we call innovation. And I'll just, or a net listing if I was an agent and I'll get you the number you want. He's like, no, I want to be out of the house. Like I want to move. I have a job opportunity in Colorado and I've been basically going back and forth and I just want to be in Colorado full time. I go, this is easy, bro. Let me take over your payments. And what I'll do, he's, and he's like, well, I need some money. I go, perfect. I'll give you the money on month 12. Here's what I want to do. I buy it. I get it cash flowing. 
and I'll bring in a private money lender after I'm stabilized and I'll give you the 20 grand you want. But after a year, he's like, okay, I'll do that. That was all done in five years. Or I'm sorry, five hours. I did that all start to finish walking mm -hmm. from a park bench to a title company back to the seller in five hours. It doesn't take that long to do this. Now I could have wholesaled that for 10, 15 grand. I decided because it was here in Arizona, I decided just to put it in my portfolio. So mm. it, it, people make this so complex. Now, where is it hard? Here's where it's hard. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Find the seller that's motivated. They already fired the agent. Give them an offer they've never received before that benefits you and the seller. Put it in your portfolio. Very simple. What are the what are the challenging parts about that? What are the hard parts? You have to learn how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. You have to get over the stupid fear of looking stupid. You have to look, you have to get over the fear of I'm going to make a hundred mistakes. You are going to make a lot of mistakes. You're you're I make 25 mistakes every freaking day. Every freaking day I make 25 mistakes, but they're fun, and I learn from them. Right. So I hope you I ha I hope you have to go to freaking North Dakota, bro. There's no deals going on up there. That'll be that'll be a real challenge. That would be a challenge. We, we thought about putting Alaska on the wheel, some random city. In Alaska's Alaska. dope. I just bought a 10 plex yeah. there with one of my students, sub two. So if you go to Anchorage, bro, there's so much creative finance deals going on up there because the market's slow, like mm -hmm. really slow and it's not growing. So these sellers over the last couple of years, especially with, with rates changing, people aren't using the burst strategy anymore. By the way, people that are using the burst strategy, listen to me right now. It is not a strategy that works in every market. You know, it does work in every single market, sub two, seller finance, lease options, wraps, mm -hmm. novations. These work in up, down, left, right, or whatever markets. Back in 2018, our main um, deal structure, the, the way we were doing deals, where the market was hot, everybody's making a bunch of money. You know what my mm -hmm. number one deal um, purchase was? Sub two, has been for eight years. Why? Because I just go after the sellers that I know are, are motivated. What were we doing? We had a door knocking team and that's all we, we did 19 sub two deals in is October of 2020, 2018. We made a massive pivot. This is obviously now coming on six years ago. Yeah. But we made a massive pivot where we go, we're, when we knock doors, we're not even going to go after cash. We always we tell the seller, look, if you were going to sell cash, you would have sold to somebody else. We right. have something unique to give you. And we did, um, we, we built up. The first month we started our door knocking team, it was like six deals. But then we got to a point where we hit the pinnacle. We, hit, we had 19 deals in October, 20 deals in November, and then 21 deals in December of 2018. This all wow. continued to go forward. We were doing 20 such, such and such deals all the way through 2020. How many people what happened in 2020? Pandemic. Pandemic. Guess what? My, guess what we weren't doing? Yep. Well, we weren't knocking doors. We stopped yeah. knocking doors because we were like not allowed to go outside and we had to have face masks on. Do you remember how stupid that was for like a year and a half? It's like, yeah. oh, dang, I'm not wearing a mask and I'm a bad person. And that's what happened to us. We were in that mindset of we shouldn't be knocking doors right now. And so we shut down our whole, whole door knocking team and we pivoted to primarily cold callers. Um, most of the deals I do today, um, I have a I have a big team now, but we're not. I'm not doing really any um, marketing anymore. Most of my deals come to me. We bought 100 and 160 million dollars in real estate last year. 100 million of it came from my students that we bought yep. deals with. 100 million dollars with students. 65 deals just came from referrals of agents that I've worked with in the, in the past. So I built up my business to a point where I don't need lead gen anymore. Yeah, that's from building the brand. Because now sub, the sub two community, Pace Morby, is a household name, at least in the real estate. Like yours, it seems like everybody's in sub two, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, it, it is uh, still a blue ocean out there. Yeah. I mean, I look at it, I, go, I look at 2 million people that are on the Bigger Pockets forums, right? There's 2 million people mm -hmm. that have um, been basically registered user, users for Bigger Pockets. One, they're the Goliath in the space. They should be, they provide a lot of value. Um, but the, that's 2 million people. Right. Then I look at it and I, I look at like Max Maxwell's YouTube channel, Jerry Norton's YouTube channel, other like big real estate names, YouTube channels, Chris Crone, Ryan Pineda, all these YouTube channels, yeah. millions and millions of subscribers between all of them that are actively watching and trying to get into real estate. And the sub two community is 15,000 people. So I look at it, I'm like, there's, so, if you really divide that out by 50 or 50 states, you're looking at 300 people per state are, are have mm. learned a strategy. But think about this again, 300 people in Arizona have learned the strategy. Guess how many foreclosures are happening every single month? 1900. How many expired listings are ha happening every month in just in Arizona? Wow. 
right? For these 300 people, like 1400, like between foreclosures and expired listings alone, if you divided that by 300 students, every student should be able to do five or six deals every month, just from the, the active stuff on two lists, not including code violations, probate, mm -hmm. not including tax, not divorce, including divorce, yeah, tired, including landlords. tired landlords, bro. Oh my gosh. Tired land. You yeah. want to go get like, yeah. Yeah, I bet that anytime I do a multifamily deal, it's always a tired landlord, right? Like anything over 10 units is a tired landlord, a guy. Uh, and you know this, so I'm just telling you this to the audience. But like the, the biggest thing is these people, somebody told them or YouTube told them, a podcast told them, hey, you're going to be a great real estate investor. Bro, I don't know if you know this, but do you did you know? I just learned this like three months ago. This is crazy to me. And it just kind of highlights the tired landlord thing as like a massive, massive opportunity as well. So um, Tim, last year, let's say hypothetically, 100,000 investment deals were purchased to go into investors' portfolios, 100,000 deals. Okay. How many of those will find their way back on the market this year? The answer is 50%. Okay. Wow. Why? Of the Why? same deals? Same, same exact deals. 50% of them will find them, themselves right back on the market. Why? They thought, they thought it'd be a lot more passive. They thought it'd be more profitable. You know, they didn't want to get the phone calls. I, you know, it happens. You get one tenant that's a great manipulator. Mm -hmm. Okay. You get one tenant. tenant. A professional tenant. Oh, professional tenant. You yeah. get one of those guys calling you. You're like, I'm out. I'm out. I, there's no way anybody does this for a living. Now, I don't know any of my tenants' names. Obviously, I have a, a, a team, but when I first had my first like eight, nine rentals, I was like, oh my gosh, this sucks. Then I meet somebody at a mixer. His name is Eric Dixon. Shout out to Eric. He's not my property manager anymore, um, but I he's like, hey, I own a company called OnQ Property Management. Can I take those nine off your, your plate? I was like, bro, please. I'm about to sell these things if I have to deal with this any longer. Mm -hmm. takes them off my plate. I've never had to talk to a tenant ever since. And so then I got to a point where I had 20 rentals, 30 rentals, and then I hired an in-house asset manager. Now I have four, but I hire an in-house asset manager that now they communicate with a property manager and I don't have to deal with anything. They're going around fixing repairs, doing the thing, blah, 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 blah. You scale. Mm -hmm. And the thing that people don't realize is that real estate, I always tell people, don't try and live on your, your cash flow. Your cash flow, in my opinion, you should have active income from other active activities, whether it's wholesaling, mm -hmm. fixing and flipping, lending. I, I do. A, there's a lot of people that do the gator method that I teach, which yep. is, you know, doing active, you know, lending on a daily basis. Have active income, whether that's your W-2 job. A lot of people freaking love their W-2 job as mm -hmm. they should. And your W-2 job should give you the power and the oomph to go out and be aggressive on your other purchases. Don't quit your job. Don't live on your cash flow. Don't be one of these people who's like, I live on passive income. The, the passive income, like we just bought an RV park, okay? Oh, mm -hmm. I got a couple of really great ones for you. I'll tell you like how I don't live on, ca on, on cash flow. I buy an RV park. I'm sorry, I buy a mobile home park in Yuma, Arizona four years ago, okay? Yep. The story is wholesaler runs into the, the seller. Wholesaler gets this guy under contract at $600,000. The, the RV park is worth $500,000. Hmm. Welcome to wholesalers, right? They're dumb. They don't know how to comp. They, yeah. I shouldn't say they're same, dumb. They're same thing like you were saying with realtors. The good ones are like, oh, I don't want to be the same group. That's the bad right. ones. <laughs> right. 99% of them have never learned how to comp. They're just they're just going out there and blindly getting people under contract and really, really like screwing over the seller in terms of like wasting all their time. But you know what? I did that too. I, I've been there too. And so I don't blame the wholesaler. I'm just letting you them know, like you got to be in the game a little bit longer to really have a lot more momentum based on the skills and experience you have. I would have known as a wholesaler not to contract that thing at $600,000 unless it was on seller finance. But they they contracted at 600,000. Obviously, they can't sell it. They come to me and they go, "This is 4 years ago, right? This is before I launched the sub2 community. This is before like yeah. everybody on the planet knew who I was. I was doing creative finance deals in Arizona and a couple of other markets, but I wasn't like a household name quite yet in the real estate space." So he comes to me, he's like, hey, I saw you at a, a real estate Rio. You spoke about how you're buying these deals. Would you buy this park for me at 600,000? And I go, yeah, if you let me talk to the seller. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, you're going to go around me. I'm like, bro, I'm not going to go around you. I'll, I'll sign something that says I won't go around you. I won't stab you in the back. But by the way, somebody should go around you and offer this guy $350,000 cash. You're $250,000 overpriced. And he's like, 
oh my gosh, is it that bad? I go, it's that bad, dude. It's that bad. You just don't understand. So I go, call, let me call the seller. I restructure the deal. I say, look, this is going to fall apart. Like, I think even when you sign the contract, Mr. Seller, his name's Tim. Mm -hmm. um, Tim, I think when you signed the contract, you knew this guy paid way too much money. He's like, yeah, I, honestly, I threw out a crazy number. I thought the guy would never send me a contract for it, but here we are. And I go, he's going to cancel. I'm the guy he sent me the deal to. He's trying to wholesale it to me. He's going to cancel the deal. He's got three days left on his inspection report. How do we restructure this? Tell me what are you trying to accomplish? And he goes, well, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And this is what, Tim, you understand really, really well. This is why you've got, got the 10 plex and these other deals. Hmm. As I said, what are you trying to accomplish? He says, well, I want to retire. Okay, this is the stuff that agents don't understand. If a seller yeah. wants to retire from being a landlord, they can't just sell a property outright without having capital gains tax. Exactly. And so they got to pay your stupid realtor fee that you did not deserve in the first place. They sh people should be paying you realtors $2,500 flat fee across the board to list a property. The buyer's agent, they deserve money. They're the ones hustling. The agents, y'all, you, you listing agents deserve 2,500 bucks for what you do. People are going to hate me for this. Guys, my wife cleans the floor with all of you agents. She's top 001% in the state of Arizona. I listen to how a real agent operates. Y'all, most of y'all are not that, okay? So mm. I, I told the guy, I go, look, if you're trying to get $600,000 and you're trying to retire, I assume it's because you're worried about if you sell it cash, you're going to have to 1031 into another deal, which then guess what happens? Still you're not retired. Yeah. You're still a landlord. In fact, the way the law is written is you have to roll that into a larger headache. You can't just roll that into a, another $600,000 park. You have to roll that into a larger park that's bigger than the one you have now. That's the way the, the law is written. So now you want to retire because you hate these tenants. Well, guess what? You're going to hate the next tenants because you got more of them. And that's the only way to avoid the tax. So I imagine you're trying to sell this park that maybe retail value is $500,000 for 600,000 because you're thinking, oh, I'm going to take a hit that's going to be a hundred plus thousand dollars when I sell it. And then I'll be close to my number. I can get, get out of the game. Yep. No agent ever tried to explain that and let alone even understand how that right, works. They if you're not agent, even know. Dude, go get a CPA, go get a CPA that actually understands tax structures with creative finance. That CPA. So my CPA will get on the phone with my sellers from time to time. It, I don't have to do it as much because now I've just learned how to say the things and, and sound credible enough. But six, seven years ago, I would have my CPA get on the phone call with the sellers. I'd pay the CPA 250 bucks to get on the phone. And the CPA would be like, yeah, bro, like I'm going to tell you right now, I can't tell you I'm your CPA. I'm Pace's CPA. So I'm actually a pretty interested party in this. Go get your own advice. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to sell that. You're going to have capital gains. You're going to be screwed. Why don't we set up a 10-year structure where over the 10 years, you you stretch out your capital gains and then you can have write-offs over those 10 years that basically wipe out those capital gains. And more importantly, you can charge interest to PACE so that the interest you receive is actually more significant than any capital gains tax you would pay over that 10-year period. Sellers like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Why didn't my agent tell me this? Because agents went to school for two weeks. And they work at Starbucks 90% of their time. They don't know anything about tax structure. So there, there's the opportunity for a lot of investors. You understand 1% more than an agent. You can go to these tired landlords. That's what this guy was. You can restructure a deal. It's a 35-unit mobile home park. Here's what I do with the cash flow. I structured it. Here's how I structured it. $600,000, no money down, 0% interest. Of course, I don't ever tell the seller 0% interest. I say principal Principal only. only. Principal only. And um, I'll do 10-year balloon. And the way my CPA structured the, the, the payments is that this seller, by the end of the 10 years, will not only receive all $600,000, um, but he'll avoid, okay, he'll avoid all of his capital gains, all of it. And mm -hmm. guess what he didn't have to do? 1031. Didn't have to 1031. Oh my gosh. There's people that know how to do that? Yep. And that's mm -hmm. why I started a YouTube channel is because nobody was doing this there was guys doing it, but there's like five or six guys in every market that was like trying to keep all this stuff a secret. And I'm talking to my title officer, like, how, how are people doing this? I hear it's a thing, but I don't know the people. She's like, they don't want to be known. They don't want anybody else mm -hmm. to know this. I'm like, let's destroy the gatekeeping. Let's teach everybody how the gangsters of the real estate world are actually operating. So here's what I do on this park. The park brings in about $25,000 a month, give or take. My net on it after management, the payment to the seller, taxes, insurance, CapEx, everything, my net 
is 7,500 bucks a month. So what do I do with that 7,500 bucks? Like most people, I, I call that a job killer, right? That deal yeah. is a job killer for most people. What I did with that $7,500 is I improved the park over the last four years. I did not take a yeah. single dollar out of that 7,500. I improved the park this month, 7,500 bucks. So, so, so on and so forth. I raised the rents. Then my cash flow went to 11,000 after a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Then it went to 15,000. And now this month is the first month after four years of me reinvesting that cash and improving that park. That park is now worth $900,000 based on the rents. Okay. I've it's improved $300,000 from where I overpaid for it. I've paid down like a hundred and something thousand dollars of payments. Okay. Now I only owe 400 and something thousand to the seller. And the property now nets me about $21,000 a month. Yeah. And now somebody's going to go, oh my gosh, now I can quit my job. Hell no. Take that 21,000, put it into the bank and maybe put in a, put it into a freaking uh, infinite banking policy or go put it into whatever else and mm. use that to go buy the next deal. Yeah. Don't quit your job until you're at $100,000 a month in income. Even then it gets addicting. It's like, I got $300,000 a month in income. This is crazy. It Guys, it starts stacking up to the point where you hope the government prints money. You hope these things, go, you hope inflation goes up because you now right. have a big significant portfolio. So that, I mean, even right now, I've got this RV park. Um, we just closed on it in Kalispell, Montana. It's right next to uh, Glacier National Park. Like, yeah. Perfect. Perfect spot. Like right when you leave the airport, you go north, there's this T, this crossroads of you either go to Whitefish or you go to Glacier National Park. My RV park is on the corner right next to the busiest gas station in the whole entire freaking Perfect. whole valley. I buy this expired listing, five, $5 million, 5% 5 down, 4% interest, 10-year balloon. Phenomenal deal. Mm. The seller, I pay him 18 grand a month. Okay, that's principal and interest. My taxes and insurance are like $6,000. So my, I'm like all into the thing, 24 grand. Okay. Now I've got management, but the way management works in RV parks is the managers work for like $3,000 a month because and you give them there. a free place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you have volunteers. You have people that are traveling the country that are like, hey, I'll volunteer to do the landscape, do the this on your park. So you usually have like four of your spaces in an RV park that are taken up with volunteers that are running the, the RV parks. So you don't really have a lot of costs. They're doing the landscape, they're cleaning the bathrooms, they're doing all this stuff. You have basically another three or $4,000 in utilities. I'm like all into this thing, maybe 30 grand a month. The property on a low month brings in $44,000 a month. I bring four, I net 14 grand a month on a brand new park that I just bought. What do I do with that 14 grand? Improve it. Well, I either A, pay off my private money lender that brought the 5% down. I pay him off as fast as I possibly can. If I'm, I'm adverse to, I'm like, I don't want to have debt. I'm a Dave Ramseyite. I'm like, let me pay that off. Or B, I put that into an account and I go buy the next deal. Everybody else is like, let me buy one RV park and quit. Okay, well, what happens when inflation takes off and $14,000 a month is no longer, you can't like keep buying. And mm -hmm. so that's been my strategy. I, this year I have slowed down. I, I, we decided to slow down a little bit because last year we bought 1,100 doors and I'm like, my team is still catching up with onboarding and getting things mm -hmm. done and property management. So I took a two month like buy, I, we froze for two months to like catch up. It is, there are that many deals in the market right now. It's crazy. And will always be for people that know how to find them. That's crazy. You kind of touched on one of the questions I wrote down, like kind of protecting yourself. So say, you know, I grew up, I, I think in one of the first generations where I was 16 years old watching Grant Cardone, like funny enough, Chris Crone, like I started watching you, mm -hmm. I think my sophomore year of college. So I grew up with this, like you didn't grow up with YouTube videos and you know, here's how to buy real estate, no money down, or other people's money, all that stuff. Um, say you're the 19 year old, you don't really have a job. You watch some YouTube videos, figure out how to cold call. You're good at talking to people. And now you buy a no money down deal. Really only cash flows on Airbnb. Buy a couple more mm -hmm. and, and that's all you got. And now Airbnb doesn't work anymore. Like, I, I feel like that's a situation I've made up in my head, but I feel like someone could get into that. What yeah, are some ways I people need to protect themselves for that to not happen? Like say you're 19, got no other income. Maybe you're just naturally good at the phone. You're working on your sales skills and you can get into some deals. Like how do you protect yourself? Um, first and foremost, Airbnb, I've never loved Airbnb. I have 75 of them. I hate all of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Airbnb is not a great strategy. Here's a couple of reasons why it's under attack. 
All right. So mm -hmm. like, forget about the good or bad economy. Forget about that right now, people are traveling less. People are more cognizant and aware of their money that they're spending. They're fearful of what's going on in the market because of YouTube and because of all the things. Um, and I'm not a clickbaiter, so, but I do watch a lot of clickbaiters, YouTube channels of like, the market's gonna crash. Oh my gosh, the world is falling. I do watch those and I'm like, oh, dang. And if I feel like that, then I can only imagine the average consumer, how they feel about it. And so people are more aware of spending less money, right? And so what happens, Yep, people stop traveling as much. You see a dip, but that's not the thing I would be worried about with Airbnb. The thing I would be worried about is Marriott. Okay, Marriott spent like a billion dollars in the last five years lobbying against Airbnb. Well, how do Pace, how do you know that? Well, one, I'm a fisherman in the river. I'm not just like standing on the banks of the river hoping one day I can catch a fish. Guys, I'm in the middle of the river, which means I'm in the market. I'm buying deals. I'm having conversations. Marriott is the reason why Atlanta, Georgia now made it illegal to have Airbnbs within city limits. Same thing yep. with Vegas. Okay. Yeah. And so for me, okay, Atlanta, what was it like 18 months ago, 24 months ago, you, Airbnb just died there. Now Same you thing have in, to get a license. Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's like that is a tourism city and Airbnb is shut down. The, now well, you can like have yeah. my Atlanta property. So I, I had 14 Atlanta properties that were Airbnb. Okay. And when this new law came out, I was like, uh, it, I mean, they'd been talking about it for like a couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Marriott and a couple of other hotel groups were lobbying against it and they were successful. They, they did a good job and what they did. And when you understand the, the chess moves that somebody with billions of dollars makes, these guys were, just so you guys know, I don't know this for sure, but I know this for sure. Marriott probably had paid homeowners locally to complain about Airbnb and the parties and guys, Go watch some documentaries about how our government was built and all the crazy shiz that people do behind the scenes to manipulate what's going on. Oh my gosh. Like I just watched Napoleon Bonaparte's like biography and I'm like, I watch how amazing, amazingly manipulative people are in bureaucracy and mm -hmm. all the crap that goes on behind the scenes. I can imagine they paid people to make all these complaints. That That's what I would do. If I was a lobbyist group, I would go knock on doors to the the neighbors of the biggest Airbnb properties and I'd say, "Hey, we'd like to we'd like to have a conversation with you. How how would you like to stay at Marriott for the next 2 years for the rest of your life or or for the rest of your life for free? We just need you to complain about this 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 and this and we need you to be relentless, right? There's ways to keep these conversations yeah. under wraps. Or maybe they, I'm a lobbyist maybe they didn't even do that. Just say, "Hey, I'm your neighbor. We hate this. Are you on board with me? You want to be neighbors?" Yeah, there you go. Out. They don't even have to offer them money or go. anything. There you go. So I look at it, I go, okay, I don't love the Airbnb strategy as an exit anyway. Are there times where it works? Yes, of course. But guys, if you're if you're trying to learn how to do Airbnb, you're you're here's what you're learning. Look at the whole entire gamut of real estate. Airbnb is 1% of 1% of 1% of the entire real estate market. You're not learning acquisitions. Learn how to acquire deals and be the master of controlling the asset and then learn all the exit strategies and what you can do with that. So one of the things I would be doing is what that guy, that 19 year old kid that has a couple of Airbnbs that are not cash flowing. Look, look at midterm rental, look at sober living sub go, go right now in your market and Google sober living, Atlanta, Georgia, whatever it is, you're going to find 30 sober living companies that are all looking for more houses to expand into sublease your house to a sober living facility. Okay. Now it's like, Oh, well pace, um, you know, the HOA is going to really hate me. The HOA can't do anything about a sober living property. It is a protected class mm. of U.S. citizens. It's a federally protected class. You know what else is a pr federally pr protected class? Uh, afford affordable housing, people that cannot afford houses. So pad split, massive mm -hmm. thing in Atlanta. By the way, pad yeah. split started in Atlanta. Atticus is a personal friend of mine. He's the owner of, of pad split. Pad split blew up in Atlanta. Yeah. Blew up. If you guys go to padsplit.com and you guys go look at all these houses, people are just taking these houses, dividing the rooms up and renting by the room. Okay. So rent by room is bec is becoming massive. Whatever is affordable is where you'll win. And not only whatever is affordable will win, it will be protected by the government because the government, did you guys, you guys saw this thing where the government just barely like Biden just came out and he's like, we're going to help 500,000 homeowners 
buy their first house. We're going to come out with this massive program and spend billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. So what they're doing is they're incentivizing builders to go and build affordable housing. And they're incentivizing people to build ADUs and incentivizing people to do all sorts of things. They're incentivizing us. They're giving us tax credits to take our single family homes, chopping them up into co-living spaces. Those, guys, those dominate Airbnb. And guess what I don't have to worry about? Cleaning the pro cleaning the property three times a week and dealing with the Karen who's complaining about the backsplash color of my Airbnb. Like, kiss my ass. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find people that need affordable housing. Okay. And then here's another exit strategy. Family promise. Okay. This is one that I've brought to the table in the industry in the last year. Family promise is a charity that helps working class families get off the street. They're not drug addicts. They're moms that work at Target that are making $18 an hour and have three kids and they can't afford rent. Average rent right now in the United States is between $1,800 and $2,000 a month. If I'm making $18 an hour and I've got three kids, how can I afford $1,800 a month in rent? I can't. So what I do is I go to Family Promise, they're nationwide, and I say, I need a place to live. I need affordability. And Family Promise does a co-living model. Guess what they do? They sublease properties from me. And then they manage the property, they manage the tenants, and they're getting government grants to pay for the freaking rent. Guys, there's a thousand different strategies that demolish Airbnb. Why would I want to do an Airbnb? I don't want to do another Airbnb as long as I freaking live. Yeah. And by the way, as an, as an Airbnb exit strategy, you're not solving any problems for our country. You... The government, guys, I made, I made millions of dollars last year. You know how much I paid in taxes? Zero. You know why? Because the government incentivizes me to own real estate, not so I can go and build Airbnbs and luxury boutique bullshit. The government gives me tax benefits because they hold me responsible to create affordable housing back into the marketplace. It's a responsibility and a duty I have. So if I'm out there going, I'm going to go get luxury stuff. I'm robbing my government. I'm robbing my other citizens. It's my responsibility to provide affordable housing. Stop lying to yourself. You need to go and provide affordable housing. It's more stable. By the way, more people are going to be doing drugs in 10 years than are today. More people are going to be on the streets in 10 years than are today. We can agree that although Airbnb will be stagnant and maybe even take a dip, guess what? Well, affordable housing will continue to be the thing to focus on. So Look up family promise, look up pad split, look up these things as alternative exit strategies that are protected classes by the federal government. The HOA and the Karen who runs the HOA can't do shit about a sober living facility. They can't. That's gold. That, that was gold, gold right there. I mean, it, it's, it's not going to go away. That's what you look for in an investment is security, predictability, like you can you can make very expensive things and maybe your Airbnb was cash flowing you 20 grand a month two years ago. But now all the people spending the money on it don't have that money or you know, they they think the recession is coming, think things are gonna get worse. They're just not spending it. It's like well, or I, I have I to take that twenty thousand dollars. I have to take that twenty thousand dollars that I netted on four months of the year to mm -hmm. stabilize the other eight months of the year that yeah. didn't make $20,000. Pay the property and then, <laughs> and And all the crap that I have to deal with. Yeah. But then, you know, look, I, guys, I have 75 Airbnbs. I like the Airbnbs I have. I said I hate them. I like them. I just look at it, I go, if I would have taken a different strategy and done 20 Airbnbs and I, I, I did the other 50 as affordable housing, I'd be way better off. So exit strategies are critical because they are the... The, the price of a house is not the value. Think about this, guys. The value of a house is what you can do with it. So the more exit strategies you have and the more understanding you have of how to make money on this house, it becomes easier for me to structure the deal on the front end and give the seller what they want. If I know, oh man, I can't cash flow on this on a regular rental. Okay, that's that happens. Okay, non-cash flowing rentals happen. I have a lot of them, but you know what I do is I just look at the other 25 exit strategies there are and I go, which one is more appropriate for the location, the geography, the migration mm. patterns that are happening? I'll go focus on that. And I, I don't have to go start a midterm rental company. There's companies out there that I can sublease to and they do midterm rental. And I just take my landlord fee at a higher dollar amount than I would have as a rental. And I don't have to be a full-time midterm rental person. You look at, there's a girl um, in sub two, one of our great... Uh, nationwide leaders. Her name is Tanisha Spencer. She has a great YouTube channel. She's just kind of starting out. And that's what she'll do. 
Like she'll take on a midterm rental. She'll help fill the property. She'll do that. She does that for me. So I don't have to go find the people to go live in my midterm rental. I just sublease it to her or one of her partners. And I get a high, like, let's say I could rent the property for 1500 normal rental. And the, my payment, because I took over a sub two deal is 1750. I'm like, oh crap, I'm going to lose money. R management, I'm going to lose like five, 600 bucks a month on this thing. Well, guess what? I just go to Tanisha and I go, hey, rent this for me at 2100. I'll let you run a midterm rental in it. Now I'm making money and I don't have to deal with the crap. She does the midterm rental and she's got the upside of uh, the better she manages it, the more money mm -hmm. she makes. But last thing I'll say about the Airbnb thing. Here's what sucks about Airbnb. Every three to five years, I have to go back to my Airbnbs and refurnish, fix things. Mm -hmm. there, people get stains on all the crap. Your I went to my one of my favorite properties right here in Mesa, Arizona the other day, and I filmed a YouTube video at it. And I walked in. I was like, oh, this property is really cute. Oh, my gosh, I love it. And I had my, my video crew with me. And they're like, yeah, this is really cute. And then we started looking closer. I'm like, oh, the blankets are like tattered. The rug has piss stains on it. And I'm like, that's a rug that's been cleaned every week, but there's still stains and gross stuff on it. Mm -hmm. So I go through and I go, we got to refresh it. We got to refresh this 15 G's just to refresh wow. the interior of the property. 15 G's guys, Airbnbs work. Yes, you can make money. I think most people that love the Airbnb exit strategy model are, they love the aesthetic practice of like making something look beautiful but I'm in the business of hiring more people and providing opportunities and jobs for people. I'm not going to be able to scale an Airbnb model, uh, Airbnb business. It's not going to happen. You cannot scale an Airbnb business. You people that say I have a scaled Airbnb business. I'm like, show me, show me and prove me wrong. And then let's look at the amount of people that attempted to do it versus the people that have done it. It's less than 1% of 1% of 1% of Airbnb people actually do it as a full time gig. Yeah. It's a hassle. It sucks. What I would do is go after affordable housing. Is affordable housing, Tim, going to ever stop and, and need have a, a need in our country? It'll probably always be there. Always be there. And it's going to get worse. I mean, you look at where Blackstone's deploying capital right now. They're buying, they're buying freaking mobile home manufacturing companies. Yeah. What does that tell you about the f future of our, our government? Last week, we're they, last week, they bought 38,000 single family homes. Well, they bought a company that owned them. There you go. Yeah. There you go. They understand where rents are going. They understand what's going to happen. In fact, they're, they're the ones that are making the waves, guys. Like, I'll never be a Blackstone. So if they're the ones making the waves, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use creative finance as my surfboard, and I'm going to surf their wave. And I'm just going to catch the wave and the momentum that they've built. I don't even have to be the wave creator. I don't have to be the big shark that's out there in the ocean creating the waves and cre creating the momentum. I just got to ride their waves and understand what the heck is going on and where the market's going. And by the way, when people are like, oh, the market's going down, why are you buying rentals? I wish I was buying rentals at the height of 2007 with creative finance before mm -hmm. the crash because I understand real estate. People go, oh my gosh, your equity is depleting. Okay, when was the last time I went down to the grocery store and used my equity debit card to buy my groceries? Kiss my ass with that equity bull crap. Look at the people, look at the people that bought in 2007. Market crashes, 2015, 2020. Where are those where, where, where are those houses now? People, it's it's not even a matter of the the equity depleted and went down to half of what the property is worth. It's not a matter of the fact that now the house is, is worth double. The fact is the people that held on to those properties in 2007, the debts have now been paid down for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, and guess what else has happened? Rents have tripled since 2007. Yeah. So their payments you held same. onto the, bro, people, oh, you, I wish I could have a time machine and was investing in 2007. Worst case scenario, I'd have properties that are double what they were in 2007. I'd have mm -hmm. rents triple what, what they were back in 2007. And I'd have houses that had been paid down for 15, 16, 17 years Tell yeah. me that to buying in 2007, if you're if buying real estate for the long haul, but tell me that 2000 buying in 2007 was a bad move. Yeah. It wasn't. You I, just have to understand where the market's going. I just wish I wasn't six years old. <laughs> me too, bro. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I mean, actually, I was your age at the time. Yeah. And I didn't know I was a contractor. I didn't know what you know. Like, this is why you're so mm -hmm. much further ahead than me. By the time you're my age, you'll be you'll have double what I have because you have double the information and People mm -hmm. have paved the way. And I, 
shout out to all the people that have paid, paved the way for yeah. me. I've not done this on my own. I've not, there's strategies I've created and there's things that I've perfected by doing it so many times. There's some of those things, but I, I pay all credit to the mentors ahead of me. Eileen Brown, shout out to Eileen Brown, one of the most important people in the creative space for me, title rep that today, as of today, she's been doing title and escrow transactions for creative finance only for 51 years. I still teach classes with this lady. I call her up like, hey, you want, I got an agent class coming up. You want to teach the class with me? She's like, absolutely. Shout out to the people who taught me mm -hmm. what the heck sub two was and seller finance was and taught me how to do it the right way and, and showed me the, the imperfections of the marketplace and how I mainstreamed sub two um, and now other people are doing it at a high level and agents hate me for it. Shout out to my mentors for making me so hated by real estate agents. Shout out. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I, we only got a, a few minutes, but I had one question that I really wanted um, to ask you just as you've grown and become a household name in the real estate space, how have like building relationships changed as you've there's more fame you're known for building wealth and being wealthy like how has things changed as you've become that as you're just meeting new people and building new relationships um you know in my mind i'm the same guy I, I, i've always been so like when you meet me in person I've, i i seem rambunctious on a podcast because i'm trying mm -hmm. to speak fast so i can get all the information and thought thoughts out but um I'm not any different than I was five years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. In fact, when I get, I can't go to, I can't get a burger without being recognized. I can't right. go to the movies without somebody wanting to sit next to me. And, hey, Pace, can I, hey, can I sit? I'm like, bro, I'm in a movie with my family. You're trying to come sit. Like literally those kind of things happen. Yeah. Outside of those weird things that happen on a daily basis, um, my life hasn't really changed much. Um I, I was moving I, from I'm, a perspective where a lot of times when you're meeting people, I feel like they probably already know you. Yeah, that's been that's been going on for eight or nine years. Like in my local yeah. market, like people come, hey Pace, how's it going? I'm like, I do we know each other? Like I have a really good memory. I've never seen you before. Oh no, 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 no. And then they start talking, and at the end of the conversation, I'm like, hey, like you never introduced yourself. And this is a phenomena that people have that they're like, you already know me because I know you so well. I've been watching you on Instagram for 10 years and I've been watching mm -hmm. these things for such a long time. And so I just, you know, I, I grin and I hug them and I tell them how much I appreciate them and I ask them their name and we carry on long conversations. Um, but I, I can tell you, I appreciate it so much because what happens is you get to a point where your business is big enough, where your um, pulse on the market changes. And when I say market, I don't mean real estate market. I'm talking about the newbie market. The mindset of the newbie mm -hmm. changes every six months based on what Ryan Pineda is putting out there, what Chris Crohn's putting out there, what Tim, you know, Tim Bratz is putting out there, what all these people are putting out there. So when I talk to these people, I love talking to everybody. I, last year I did 110 meetups, met 7,000 people in person. And I get to have all these 7,000 conversations about where they are mindset wise and what they're struggling with and what they thought Ryan video, Ryan's video was true or not true, or Pace's video was true or not true. And it gives me a, a, a better understanding how to craft my story to make sure that the, the thing that I deliver to them is going to give them the results faster than what it gave to me. And so, uh, I, you know, I don't even think anything of it other than the people that come up to me and act like they know me because they do, right? They've been watching my clones for two years or three years before they meet me in person. And I just tell them, hey, I love you. I appreciate you. You're, you're I so appreciated. Thank you so much for this. And then I move into the conversation. I don't think much, I don't think too much about it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. We're at just about an hour. Um, was there anything else we didn't cover? I, I know. Uh, oh, bro, we could talk, like, literally. I, I, I'm like, like, I, we could go four more hours, but I, I, I tell everybody, Mike, hours, if you're going to do a podcast with me, do two hours. Let's freaking let's crank. Let's talk about personal stuff. Let's talk about yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, well, you, do you know, have if another you're, hour. If you're, if you're well, I no, I don't. I'm actually late for my next thing. But what yeah. I would I would love to do, I'd love to do something in person. Like come if you're if you want to come down to Phoenix and do something fun. Or you're in Atlanta, right? Atlanta. Yep. Okay, cool. I'll actually I'm gonna be in Atlanta um in in April. So okay. maybe we can connect in in Atlanta yeah. as well. I, I host I host a meetup in Atlanta if you want to come speak. We're uh, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. I, I, Gino Palumbo came and spoke a couple of months love ago. Love Gino. Shout out to Gino. Yeah. Love Gino. He just hung out with him the other day. He just got engaged. Super proud of him and his mm -hmm. awesome fiance. She's so dynamic and cool. Um, yeah, I'll be I'll be there in um, April. Maybe we could do a big meetup and bring the whole community yeah. out and 
Um, would love to speak. We could talk about the state of the market and what, what, like maybe we could even do expired listing calls live, but we could also do a follow up to the podcast. Ask your audience, make a comment down below what your questions are, what you want more information on, and we can come back and do a part two of this if, if uh, people liked it enough. Be awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, You're the man, brother. I appreciate you. you. We'll talk again soon. Hey, dude, just last time, I'm proud of you. I'm, I'm impressed by you. Keep doing your thing. Don't stop. Creating content is really hard. Even this, mm. even this morning, I'm, I'm on my run and I'm thinking about, you know, I'm filming YouTube content today after my next podcast, which I'm five minutes late for, but, and it's hard, like trying to figure mm. out how to deliver a message that will actually change people's lives. Even after doing it for three, four, five years, it only gets harder. But I can tell you that you'll get better and better and better and just keep leveling up the people you're hanging out with. Um, the best thing I ever did in my life is I started spending money to get into to rooms, right? Like this year, uh, February 2nd, I'll be at a mastermind that I'm a part of, really like kind of a secret mastermind. You have to be generating $5 million a year in one of your businesses and even to get an invite. Mm. I can tell you that those are the rooms that have changed my life the most because it changed my thinking, my, my trajectory, my goal setting, what's possible, right? Like Grant Cardone shows you what's possible, but being around people that are physically in private rooms, having private conversations that you can't have on YouTube, those are the game changers for me. And so this year I'll probably spend $300,000 this year, just getting into rooms that I didn't have access to last year, et cetera. So think about that. Even this year, I'm going to, I'm joining an AI mastermind has nothing to do with real estate. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I'm going to go join an AI mastermind. I'm going to sit there as a student of the game and like understand what the heck is going on and how can we implement this in real estate and whatever else. And there's things going on there, but I don't know enough to be educated. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go buy education, which is the cheat code. I'm going to go and buy myself into rooms to show people that I'm serious and committed just like they are so that they know they can build a relationship with me. So keep doing your thing, dude, and keep leveling up who you're hanging out with. That's that's what I do every single day, and it will be the biggest game changer in your content. Start collaborating with other YouTubers, right? Like go to outside of real estate too. Like yeah, 40, 50% of your friends should be in YouTube that are not real estate YouTubers so you can learn how they do what they do, and the other 60% can be real estate YouTubers. Awesome. I appreciate that advice. I'll let doing you know. Doing a great job, bro. Thank you so much, Pace. Doing a great job. Keep it up, dude. See you soon. Be on the next.